Thank you for listening to the Restoration City Church Podcast. For more information about our church or to support us financially, please visit rcc.church. Super excited to jump into this passage. It's one of those places where it's probably helpful to remind ourselves that the three men who wrote this letter, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, um, were every bit as much church planters as they were traveling evangelists. We tend to think of them as traveling evangelists, which is great because that's what they were, but everywhere they went around the Mediterranean world, their goal was not simply individual conversion. They were establishing and building new communities of faith. They were planting churches. And it's always helpful for us in 21st century America to be reminded that the biblical vision of church is a group of people far more than it is a building or an event or a series of programs that we participate in. That churches are groups of people who come together to follow Jesus, to love and care for one another, and to serve our city and our world. And wherever Paul, Silas, and Timothy went, they were going to preach the gospel, they were going to announce the good news of the kingdom of God, and they were going to get to work on building a community of faith. And when we think about what that kind of community of faith should look like, what it looked like for them 2,000 years ago, and what it should look like for us today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 to 12 has a lot to say about that topic. In fact, for me, at least me personally, I find the verses that Katie just read to be one of the most uh, compelling visions of community that we find anywhere in the New Testament, right? Think about what it is that Paul is describing in this letter about his understanding of church, about his approach to ministry, and about what it looked like to be a part of the kind of community of faith that we call a church, right? The heart of that vision comes in verses 7 and 8, where he says, although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you as a nurse nurtures her own children, right? It's this picture um, of tremendous intimacy. It's this picture of a desire to lovingly sacrifice for the good of another. And then in verse 8, he comes on uh, to say something that's even stronger. He says, we cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. And in those two verses right there, we see that this is a community where people were sharing their lives with one another. But what we don't realize is that the word that Paul uses here for shared our lives is very closely related. And a lot of other times in the New Testament, that same word gets translated as souls. Right, so he's really talking about a community where people are voluntarily willing to share their souls, to share the depth of who they are with one another. Right? So this is a vision of community that goes way beyond being in the same place at the same time. 
All right, this is a vision of community that goes way beyond just a bunch of people that have some common interests or have some common preferences. This is a community where it became the norm following the example of their leaders to share their souls with one another. Right? And, the, and the whole goal of that was that as they were willing to open up their lives, as they were willing to open up their hearts and the core of who they were, they were doing so with an understanding that the goal was to serve one another and to nurture each other's faith in Jesus, right? That this wasn't just vulnerability for the sake of vulnerability, which seems to be very in vogue in our culture, but this was vulnerability for the sake of transformation, Clearly, it's a deeper vulnerability than, hey, let's grab a drink and catch up, right? This is more than, let me just talk to you about what's going on. This is a vulnerability. It's an authenticity that anticipates that we're going to be looking for real and tangible ways to lift burdens from each other's shoulders and to lift burdens from each other's Hearts, right? It is the kind of community that both comes from and produces tremendous affection for one another, right? That's why in verse 8, Paul says, you would become so dear to us. He's using a form of the verb uh, to love. You'd become so beloved. You had become so significant to us. But what really would have captured the attention of the Thessalonians is the word that Paul used when he said, we cared so much for you. It's this really unique word. In fact, this is the only place in the entire New Testament, it's the only place in the entire scripture that it's used. It's this shockingly strong word that could also be translated, we long for you. But what it meant in the day was, we long for you with the same intensity that a parent would long for a deceased child. It's, it's, jar, it's meant to be sort of this jarring, like, whoa, okay. Right? The way that a parent would have that sense of, man, I would give anything for one more day, one more hug, one more bedtime, one more little chat, one more meal. I'd give anything for that. And Paul is taking that level of intensity, that level of affection, and he's saying, hey, let's bring that into the conversation of what it means to be a part of a local church. It's sort of this shockingly high bar. It kind of begs this, like, wait, for, for real? Like, is that really what we are aiming for? And I'm convinced that it is not only what God is calling us to in this community, but it is the kind of community that we all long to experience, right? It doesn't matter whether you want to check in with leading theologians or psychologists or sociologists, wherever you go, kind of across any discipline you can imagine, everybody is going to agree that as human beings, we are just hardwired for connection, right? Uh, going back to the beginning of the scripture, in the book of Genesis, God says, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, that it is not good for humanity to be alone which we always apply in the context of marriage, which is not necessarily wrong, but that's not necessarily the heart of what God's trying to say in Genesis. He's making an observation about the human condition, that we need one another to thrive in life, that we are inherently relational beings who are made in the image of an inherently relational 
God, that we are hardwired for connection, which sets up a real challenge in a city like Washington, where we are all, whether we are followers of Christ or not, looking for connection. We are looking to be known. We're looking to share our lives. We're looking for a space where we can be ourselves, yet we live in an incredibly isolated city in the midst of an incredibly isolated culture, right? Well before COVID, before there was ever a pandemic, uh, Vivek Murtha, who had been the Surgeon General and is actually back now to serve as Surgeon General again, was going around the country and he was describing what he called an epidemic of loneliness, right? And then back in 2020, in the height of the pandemic, he released a new book called Together, where he just kind of makes the case over and over again of how much we need community and how rare it is in our world. So you and I are living in this moment where one of our most ingrained desires as human beings is finding fewer and fewer opportunities to be met, finding fewer and fewer opportunities to be satisfied. And then we enter into that moment the reality of the church of Jesus Christ. We enter into that moment, this reality that Paul, Silas, and Timothy travel around, not just contending for individual conversion, but for, hey, let's Let's create a community and we take that reality and we wrestle with the fact that you and I are part of the same community or you're at least visiting our community for the first time today or you're looking for some kind of community, you're looking for some kind of group of people in this city who are following Jesus together and you could see where this takes on absolutely explosive potential because if we could create that kind of community, there wouldn't be a room big enough to to contain all the people who would want to be a part of it. All right, so I don't think my job this morning is to kind of convince us that we want that kind of community. I think there's something inside all of us that's like, yes. I think our time is far better spent trying to wrestle with the fact of, is that even possible though? Because right, I just think, feel like none of us have the capacity anymore for one more, you know, kind of aspirational, altruistic talk of, wouldn't it be great? And we're like, yeah, but it's not actually going to happen. I'm just going to keep living in isolation and feeling disconnected from my neighbors and wondering where I can find a space. So what I want to try to do today is move in the direction of showing us how this is possible. I want to kind of approach that on two different levels. Um, first, we're going to start with sort of a theological foundation by looking at how the gospel opens the door to this kind of community. Then we're going to take a hard pivot. We're just going to talk very practically at the end of our time. So we've got a lot on our plate. Let's just kind of keep pressing into it with a theological foundation, right? Um, Paul is deeply aware that the gospel enables us to build loving community. Notice what he says in verse 8. Let's go back there one more time and get the order right. He says, we cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, right? This is not a moment where Paul kind of leaves the gospel behind and is like, yeah, 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 we do all of our little gospel thing and everybody's sin gets nailed to the cross and you're forgiven and you're alive and you're going to heaven and yay, gospel. Okay, let's get started building community. Who wants to play soccer? 
Like, he's not doing that, right? He's not kind of taking these two and separating them. He's like, no, 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 no. We're going to have to get the gospel right if we're ever going to create a community that is truly loving, right? For Paul, the gospel is a necessary prerequisite for the kind of community that they were building in Thessalonica. It's a necessary prerequisite for the kind of community that we want to build here, because Paul is deeply aware that if we don't get the gospel right, we're not really going to have much hope of experiencing truly loving community in this world. By the way, not incidentally, if we don't get the gospel right, we have no hope of experiencing relationship with God. We have no hope of experiencing fellowship with God for all eternity. So the gospel is central to where we're going here. And the gospel has to be central to building this kind of community because the gospel is relentlessly honest about the human condition. Right, so if you're new to the idea of church, maybe you're just checking us out online, you're trying to figure life out in a new city, and you were thinking that you were going to encounter a group of perfect, neat, clean, holy, uncomplicated, unbroken church people, you will be sorely disappointed by what you discover here at Restoration City Church or any other church out there for that matter. Right? The gospel is a story that enables us to be honest about the brokenness of our own souls. The gospel almost serves as this kind of spoiler alert that we are all far more broken than we want to let on. We clean up well on a Sunday morning. We hold it together pretty well at the office. Most of us are pretty socially proficient. We can put out a good game on Friday night. But if we're talking about the kind of community where we are known like at the level of our soul... I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we're like, hey, wait a minute. If we're talking about that, I need to know that I'm in a place that's prepared for the fact that the reality of my heart can get real ugly real fast. Think about it this way. I don't know how much uh, HGTV you watch. Um, The less, the better. But, um, uh, you know, we all probably, at least in our family, we give in on a tired night and just find something deeply captivating about watching people get granite countertops. I don't know why. But every HGTV show that's out there always has the moment where they go to knock down the wall to create the open concept house of their dreams, right? Um, It's always this moment, and it's always tense because you don't know what you're going to find when you knock down the wall. Like, is there going to be asbestos or, you know, a water main or HVAC or what's going to happen. And we already know the punchline. It's going to be fine. Whatever we find, we're just going to have to put a header in, but yet we're captivated by it. And we're like, oh, let's see. And don't worry, it's not going to sink the budget, but is it going to be a wood header or a steel header? Okay. I clearly watch way too much HGTV, but that moment, you know it. And it's like, okay, what do we find when we knock out the wall? How bad is it going to get? Our concern when it comes to community is that we know if we're starting to knock down the walls that we've built to protect our souls, that it's not going to be pretty what we find in there, right? That you're not going to knock down those walls and just be like, oh man, it's smooth sailing. We're going to knock down those walls and run into all kinds of anger and frustration and lust and bitterness and unforgiveness. There's going to be all kinds of selfishness. There's going to be all kinds of stuff there that we almost wish we could just keep hidden. 
We're like, man, maybe I don't need an open concept life. Right? Maybe walls are going to be okay for me, and I'll just keep a couple of them strategically in place because there's going to be some places in my life that, that people don't want to go. or There's at least places in my life that I don't want to let people go. And if the gospel was nothing more than a spoiler alert that you've got some junk behind the walls of your life, it would really be a cautionary message of like, hey, you've got some junk in the walls of your life. Why don't you keep those suckers intact? Like, don't you tearing down these walls? What, what a disaster. Yeah, it sounds so good. It sounds so freeing to, you know, be known for who you really are and be loved for who you really are. But who needs to take that kind of a risk? Just, just keep the wall up. But, of course, the gospel goes one step further. It doesn't just say, hey, look, when you tear the walls down, it gets ugly. It, it does kind of let us know that. It helps us anticipate that. But it also tells us how God has responded to the brokenness that hides in each one of our souls. Right, that God doesn't condemn, that God doesn't destroy, that God sends his son Jesus to die in our place on the wood of the cross to pay the price for all of the mess that we've made and to open up the door for us to grow and to open up the door for us to change and to grow up and open up the door for us to become increasingly made into the image and the likeness of God. Right, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that God doesn't want to expose the sin of our lives to mock us, that God doesn't want to expose the sin of our lives to humiliate us and shame us and be like, man, check out how messed up she really is, that God wants to expose all of that so that he can heal and he can redeem and he can restore and he can transform which all of a sudden makes it safe to take down those walls, but we also need the reminder that God does so much of that redeeming, restoring, transforming work in the context of community, right? That as a church, part of what it means to be a part of a church is we are sort of agreeing with one another that as we take down walls, we are going to try to respond to each other the same way that God has responded to us in the cross, Right? That's the real trick. That's where the rubber hits the road. Where we're like, okay, I can be real about who I am because I know how God feels, but I also know that the other people in this community have a sense of what it is to be known by God, have a sense of what it is to be forgiven by God, have a sense of what it is to have God at work in their lives, and I am going to slowly, step by step by step, trust that they are going to respond to my sin and my brokenness the same way that God responds to my sin and my brokenness. At which point the gospel just explodes in our hearts because this has gone from a theoretical reality of, okay, here's how God feels about our sin to like, wait, here's how the people in my small group responded when I finally opened up about what was going on in my life. Here's what it felt like to sit across from a cup of coffee with somebody and say, man, here's the reality of our marriage and have them lean in versus run away. Here's what it felt like to open up the reality of just how lonely I am and have somebody meet that with grace rather than judgment, right? That's the project that we're engaged in together. Not just to be aware of how God responds to our sin, but to respond to each other's sin in the way that God would have us do that. And if we're willing to move in that direction, we unlock tremendous power to start to live into what we see here in verses 11 and 12. Notice what Paul says, as you know, like a father with his own children, it's interesting, he's using maternal and paternal imagery in the same passage, but he says, we encouraged, 
we comforted, we implored each one of you. It wasn't just all-purpose sermons on Sunday. There's something personal and upfront and close about this. Got right into each other's lives and encouraged, comforted, implored to walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and into his own glory. Paul was trying to create a community where we could speak gospel truth into the intimate realities of each other's lives. Not just a 35,000 foot message of grace on a Sunday morning, but living in context where people are able to speak the truth of the gospel into the specifics of what you went through this week. That's what we need. Sure, I hope the sermon serves us well. I hope the weekly reminder of the grace and the mercy of God fuels our soul, but I also hope it increases our appetite to be in environments where we can experience that in an even more personal, even more specific way. It says, okay, here's what you're walking through as you are trying to navigate the journey of infertility. Can we speak into that as a community? Or whatever the example is, in your life. The gospel makes the whole thing possible. The gospel opens up the door to this kind of community, but we need, I'm convinced we need something that helps us figure out how we structure community or how we think about community um, in a way that lets us actually start moving in this direction. Because again, I I don't think it's enough just to say, hey, Paul, desires for us, God desires for us to live in this beautiful community. And and look, we can all see the theory of the gospel making that possible, but then we're still left being like, okay, but I've only come to this church like three or four times. This is like less, how do I find this? Like, what's the first move? Like, how do I, like, how do you do this? Like, this isn't the air that you and I breathe. This isn't the overwhelming ethos of the culture that we live in. So what does it look like to actually move in this direction? And this is something clearly we think about a lot as a church and something that we have talked about a lot in the past, but I want to try to come at it from a slightly different angle this morning. And I want to take what we have been talking about in 1 Thessalonians 2 and what we're going to talk about. There's more to come from Scripture, but I want to kind of bring that into conversation with the work of a British scholar, a guy named Robin Dunbar. Um, he teaches at Oxford. He is an anthropologist. Um, he's also, um, an interesting title, he's an evolutionary psychologist. Um, spoiler alert, I'll save you the time Googling him. Um, I'm pretty sure he's not a Christian. Um, you never know for sure, but he's got some things to say about organized religion that I'm like, I don't think the guy is a follower of Jesus. So you can go ahead and put that little asterisk behind this. So we're gonna put Robin Dunbar on a lower shelf than the Apostle Paul. But he wrote this book back in 2010 that's really, really, really helpful. Um, It's got an intriguing title. Um, He called his book, How Many Friends Does One Person Need? Which every introvert in the room is like, uh, two. You're like, two, I'm good. I know the number, right? And when people read books like that, you're like, obviously he's not going to give us an actual number, right? That's like the provocative title that the publisher came up to to sell a book, and then he's going to write, well, it depends on your personality and your makeup and how old you were when you started preschool and blah, blah, Enneagram, blah, 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 blah. Dunbar doesn't do that. He's like, oh, you'd like a number? I have one for you. His number is 150. 
right? If you've ever been in a class somewhere, you heard this idea of like Dunbar's number. It's 150. He has this strongly held belief that as human beings, we have the capacity for about 150 friends. By the way, here's a really low bar for that 150. He means that those are people that you might check in with like once a year. Like, they're people that, if you're married, they probably know your spouse's name, and they probably know whether or not you have kids, but they probably don't even know your kids' names. Like, they're just sort of like, and we're okay with that, right? We're not trying to pretend to know everything about everybody in this 150. But he's like, look, that's kind of the max. And he does that number um, based off of just kind of examining human history, right? He looks at everything from the uh, size of the average medieval village, which was about 150 people, to the size of the average church in America today, which is about 125 to 150-ish people, right? Every pastor you talk to will tell you that churches go through significant changes when they go over that 150, 200-person mark, because under 150, you can kind of know everybody. Over 150, you really can't. So Dunbar, as an aside, he would really like Facebook to stop calling those 1,700 people your friends, like, he's like, no, 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 they're not your friends. You're not wired for that. You don't have kind of the bandwidth to be tracking with this person who you don't even know where you met her from, but now you're living vicariously through her week in Puerto Vallarta, right? You're like examining and how much did they spend on that hotel? And you're like, you don't even know who this person is. He's like, you don't have time for that. That's not going to work. That's going to overwhelm your circuitry, right? He, he, whole aside, he's like, man, that's actually going to make this problem of isolation worse because nobody actually knows you, but you're trying to track with like 1,700 people on Facebook. So he's got some real strong convictions in that area, but he goes on, right? This is not just like, oh, hey, John read a book Sunday. Um, this is like, hey, hang on, stick with me. We're going to go from 150, max number, to then he says everybody usually organizes their life into a second level of friendship. What he's going to call a sympathy group, which is about 12 to 15 people. His argument on that point is actually really strong, where he's like, look, look at every healthy functioning executive team, look at sports teams, look at leadership teams and nonprofit organizations. He's like, man, there is something to be said for a circle of 12 to 15. He will also even include um, Jesus and his apostles. And again, I don't think he's a Christian, but he's very aware of the New Testament. And then what he will go on to say, one more, and then we're going to get back to the scripture. He's like, okay, hey, within this group of 12, to 15 people, kind of, um, this is the group that uh, you might call your close friends. They're like your people. You know what's going on in their life. They know what's going on in your life. Within that group, you're going to have a group of three to five intimate friends, right? His best example, by the way, is, okay, you get these 12 apostles, and then Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they kind of go off and form this deep inner core, and he really wants us to kind of think about relationships in these three different 150, 12 to 15, three to five kind of categories, levels, okay? Keep that in mind. Look at what Paul does in 1 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 10, and then we're going to talk about it. 9 and 10, he says this, for you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we would not burden any of you. We preached God's gospel to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers, right? Now, we're going to take those two things and mesh them together. Uh, we're going to take Robin Dunbar and 1 Thessalonians 2 and try to bring them together because I think as we talk about building a loving community here at RCC, it's going to be really helpful if we can think about our relationships with one another as existing on three different levels, right? 
Level one is the level that I'm going to describe as uh, the people who would be able to answer the question, what are you doing in life, right? This is obviously Dunbar's 150, and what we just saw in verses 9 and 10 is that the Thessalonians knew what Paul, Silas, and Timothy were up to. They knew that when they were in Thessalonica, they were working day and night. This is probably one of the cities where they were building tents, where they were supporting themselves so they didn't need to be a financial drain on the community. They knew that they were going around preaching the gospel, probably sometimes in um, religious meetings. For the first three weeks, they were doing it in a synagogue, but there's also the strong implication that as they were making tents, they were just talking to people about Jesus and be like, hey, what kind of tent do you need? And let me talk to you about Jesus and why we're really in town and all that kind of stuff, right? The Thessalonians knew what was going on in their lives, right? And that's kind of where this whole journey towards loving community starts, which for some of us, that's like a no-brainer. But for others, it really is significant to move even to that level as it relates to the local church because it means there need to be people in this room or people that join your small group online who know what's going on in your life. Like who know where you live, what you do for a living, what your weekends look like, who would know what you're going to be doing over Thanksgiving, right? Which, again, for some of us, you're like, man, I happily live at that level. But I think for some of us, we're like, man, I don't normally relate to the church even at that level. And if that's you, I would say, there you go. This is our first step is to kind of move into level one because obviously we can't really fast forward past that level. It kind of starts here. Like you can't go straight from, hey, this is my third time in church to meeting somebody in the lobby and saying like, hey, would you like to get together and share our souls? Right? Or at least if you try that, you're going to get a restraining order or something, you know, so it's not going to work. Like that, that's not going to be a healthy way of doing it. Now, of course, it's like, yeah, yeah, I get it. We have to start there. Okay, that makes sense. Here's the real trick. We can't stay there though. Because if all we do is build a series of level one relationships in life, you'll never feel truly loved. Right? You're never going to feel like you're part of a loving community. We got to press into what I'm going to call level two, which is where we start to transition from what are you doing in life to how are you doing, right? Again, with the Thessalonians, notice they had deep understanding, not just of like the chronology of what Paul and Silas and Timothy were up to and where they'd come from, but they knew not just about their labor, they knew about the hardship that they were experiencing. Right? Paul had already been really honest with them, 1 Thessalonians 2.2, on the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, he had talked to them about the pain of what it was to have been publicly beaten in Philippi, the pain of what it was to have been jailed. And maybe that still sounds like, yeah, but he's still just talking about what happened. He's not really getting to the core of like, how he experienced that emotionally, like how he processed that, like how that impacted him. Okay, well, I want you to know that Paul's not afraid to go to that level either. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 through 9. Talk about this for vulnerability on behalf of a pastor, on behalf of an evangelist, on behalf of somebody who's writing scripture. We don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength, so that we even despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. 
so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Can you imagine you go to small group this week and somebody starts off with how you doing and somebody just pulls out 2 Corinthians 1 and is like, well, there you go. I've had a week where I kind of despair of life itself which for some of us is not a theoretical reality. For some of us, it's like, that's actually been my week. Like, that's actually been the week I've had where I'm like, man, it's just, I don't know how long I can do this. I just sometimes wonder if I would be better. I sometimes wonder if other people would be better off. Sometimes wonder if, yeah, I just don't know. See, when we start to get there, it starts to shift in the room a little bit, right? All of a sudden it goes from like, oh, I get it, level of 150, we need to be known. But we were like, no, no, that's just, we're just getting started. We're trying to get to the place as a community where we talk about like, but how's that going for you? So you're going to go back and spend Thanksgiving with your family. What's that going to be like for you? Right, what's all the dynamics with that? You're going to spend Thanksgiving alone in an apartment in this city, okay? How's that going to be for you? Would you be willing to jump in and do Thanksgiving with my family? Would you be willing to be a part of what my circle of friends are doing? Hey, your career's exploding, and it looks like everything's going great for you. It looks like you're crushing it on Instagram. But how's your marriage? Like, what do your kids say about you? 20 years from now, what are your kids going to tell other people that it was like to grow up in your home? How are they going to describe you as a parent? And all of these places that we know we need to go to, all these places that we know that we want to go to, but we're like, man, this is where I'm going to have to put some real trust in the power of the gospel. All that little HGTV knocking out walls thing, that's going to have to be more than theory. And I'm going to have to take real steps with real people and say, I'm going to tear down a wall just a little bit. And I'm going to see if you're going to treat me the way Jesus would treat me. Like, I need to know if we're going to do this for real. Because I have some stuff that I'd like to talk about. But I need to know that this is a place where it's going to be okay for me to follow Paul. Not Paul when he's announcing the triumphant reign of God, but Paul when he's like, man, I was so ready to throw in the towel that you wouldn't believe it. And that's the kind of community that we're trying to build. We can't do that here on a Sunday morning. That's why small groups are such a big deal for us. Right? This is Dunbar's 12 to 15. And no, I'm not saying that every level two friend that you have in life is in your small group. And the only people you ever go deep with are church people. And the only people you ever know are church people. Because if you know, you're ever in an environment where it's like, hey, the only people you know are other people in the church, that's usually called a cult. Like, we're not trying to be that. Like, you're going to have other good friends from college. And you're going to have other people that you really connect with at a deep level. But this is where we're trying to get in our small groups. Right? This is where we're, we're trying to build to. Because we're ultimately trying to open up the door for a third and much rarer level of community, which is the group of people who know not just what you're doing and know not just how you're doing, but they know how you're living. That's verse 10. It's Dunbar's 3 to 5, but it's 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you as believers. The Thessalonians didn't just know what Paul, Silas, and Timothy were up to. 
They just didn't know how it was going. They knew how they were living. They knew the measure of devotion in their hearts. They knew what righteousness looked like and didn't look like. And they knew where there was sin and where there was blame and where there was blamelessness and where there was holiness and where there was purity and where there was decay and where there was need for the ongoing transforming power of God. See, this third level, this is what we ultimately crave. This is where all the cards go on the table. This is where it becomes safe to confess sin where we become safe to share our temptations, to open up about our struggles. This is where we combat shame, right? This is the level that we cannot and will not attempt to program for you as a church, right? We would do far more harm than good by pretending we can kind of create these relationships for you. These are where you have to go on your own. We can do everything we can to champion that, to encourage that, to pray that it would come out of a small group or come out of people that you meet serving on a Sunday, but we can't program that for you because this is far too sacred, far too personal, far too holy, but we can champion it. We can champion it by saying, although we can't create it, you do have the ability to create this level of relationship for yourself, but you're never gonna get there without significant intentionality, and you're never gonna get there without at least a certain amount of awkwardness, right? Particularly for men, like we just don't do this as well as women. Right? It's gonna require moments of saying, hey man, it's been, I, like, I like hanging out with you, and it's been great. There's just some stuff I'd love to be able to like go for a hike. I just, there's some stuff happening in my life that I need to talk through with somebody. Can we get some time on the calendar and go for a walk some afternoon? I won't make it too awkward for you, but I just need to open up about some parts of my life. It's going to feel risky. It's going to feel scary. It's going to feel like, what in the world am I doing right now? Like, what is happening? But man, it's what we long for. And if the church is not the kind of place where we're at least open to that possibility, then it kind of begs the question, like, what are we doing here? I mean, well, like, are we just coming together to check a box or fulfill a religious obligation or get a little spiritual booster for the week? Or are we actually open to the possibility of being what Jesus died for? A community of faith, hope, and love. A community of love and of grace and of mercy a place where it's okay not to have everything figured out, a place where it's okay to be broken, and a place where we're willing to come alongside with one another and fight for what God is doing in our lives. Right, and my whole purpose with this level one, level two, level three thing is not to invite you to go play container store with all of your friends, right? It's just kind of how I'm wired. I love to organize and categorize things. Like everything in me wants to like pull out my phone and every contact gets a number. Like some of you are going to get a, a one and a two and a three, right? Actually only a max of 150, then I'm going to delete a bunch of people, which would feel oddly freeing. Like you can talk about that in your small group this week, right? Like that's not the goal of this is to necessarily put a number next to everybody, but it's just to ask the question, what level are you living life at, right? If, if, if you let me be a real pain, what level are you living your marriage at? Are you guys just existing at level three of like, who's picking the kids up? When was the last time you had a good conversation about how you're actually doing? When was the last time you let yourselves go to level one as a married couple? What does your engagement with community look like? And are you willing to start moving in that next step 
Right? For some of us, that just means sticking around after church and saying hi to some people. That's great. That's awesome. I love that. I'm going to be down front. Come say hi to me. I promise I'll be nice to you. Right? For some of us, it means finally moving towards a small group. And for some of us, it means, hmm, I've been hanging out in level two for a while. And it's good. It's changing me. But I know there's more. Let's keep going. Right? Let's actually work together to build this kind of community. Father in heaven, we need you to lead us in this. Father, this doesn't come naturally to any of us because this really isn't the stuff of personality types or how extroverted you are. This is intentionally putting us on a course where we wrestle with the things that are closest to our soul. Where we're willing to fight against guilt and against shame and against the fear of rejection. Father, give us the courage we need, not just to talk about the theoretical potential of the gospel, but give us the courage we need to experience really and truly the transforming power of the gospel. In this moment, help us open our hearts to you. But God, I do pray, I'm asking you, help us, show us what it looks like to open our lives to one another, that we could experience the joy of biblical community, that we could be formed and transformed and we could live the life that you've designed us for. So God, I pray for every person in this room. I pray for every person on the live stream right now. Just lead us, God. Show us what you would have us do with this message. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.